0: time for our regular segment with barrister and solicitor with mulligan defense lawyers it's michael mulligan with legally speaking morning michael how we doing hey good morning i'm doing great always good to be here some really interesting stories on the agenda for this week i had a lot of texts earlier in the week saying adam you need to take a look at what's happening with the land act here in the province of british columbia i know you and i have discussed legislative change in the past so i was wondering um what are your thoughts on this Well, here's some background in terms of what's going
1: on and why there's been uh, some concern raised about an act that I'm sure most listeners have never heard of before. Yeah. Uh, It's it's an act you probably should have heard of uh, because, in fact, in British Columbia, 94% of the land in British Columbia is crown land not owned by any individual or company or anything else. 94%. So just think about that. As you're struggling to find a townhouse to buy or a condo or something, bear in mind that 94% of the land isn't owned by anyone other than the province. Hmm. Uh, Now, the Land Act uh, authorizes uh, a um, provincial minister, in this case it's Nathan Cullen, Minister of Water, Lands, and It's water, land, and land resource stewardship is what they've currently called it, although that bounces around from government to government, what they might call the thing. It allows the minister who's uh, uh, given the authority under this Land Act to authorize the use of this 94% of the province in various ways for various purposes and the the overarching idea would be the minister can make decisions which are in the public interest right that be sort of the threshold you might differ in terms of what that amounts to in any particular case but that's the sort of the uh the north star there and the land act would allow things like land to be leased to somebody for some purpose used for maybe a hydro development leased for logging used for mining or even small things that might affect people like you want to build a dock on your property well that's uh, underwater. If you're covered by water, that's uh, uh, crown land. You need to get permission. There's the Land Act, right? Interesting. So that's the Land Act. It governs 94% of the province's land. So all the lake now, bottoms, too.
0: I hadn't thought of that, but yeah.
1: Correct. All the lake bottoms, all the rivers. It, it has really big impacts for everything. I mean, just imagine anytime any time you any know, large project is be developed, you want to put up, uh, I don't know, hydro lines or yeah. somebody wants to build a dam or somebody wants to have a mine or open a business or indeed... The province could sell land, right? That's so. Anyways, it's really important. So that's that act. Okay. And what happened uh, most recently that caused some real concern? Uh, and uh, credit to it's a large law firm in Vancouver called MacMillan. Mm-hmm. A number of senior lawyers there noticed a posting on a they described it as little known government website. Indeed, I'd never heard of it. Hmm. Uh, www.engage.gov.bc.ca hmm and on that uh, little-known website was a picture of some, you know, land, uh, and uh, to- a topic was Land Act Amendments, and it gave people uh, a short time to look at a PowerPoint presentation that's posted there, uh, and it allowed people to make written submissions about those things on a really short timeline until the end of March, and then legislation was proposed to amend that Land Act. I must say, I smiled as I read the things you cannot do uh, in the written submissions. They include a Uh, expressly telling you that you cannot include obscene, illegal, immoral, or sexually explicit material. And then they take the time to note uh, that uh, profanity or other unacceptable language by substituting asterisks or other symbols or words is not acceptable if the word remains recognizable. So don't think about using unacceptable language with asterisks. They've prohibited that. Uh, You also can't make unproven or unsupported accusations. Hmm. So they've the government uh, has put up this proposal to amend the Land Act without giving any, like, there was no press release, there was no suggestion they were doing this, they didn't say anything about it. It was sort of in that category of, it appeared to be, uh, slip one in, <laughs> basically, if anyone was going to notice this thing. Oh, Anyways... The, lawyer, the law firm in Vancouver noticed that they wrote a, a critique of that in terms of what impact that could have, and that produced, a credit to him, Von Palmer wrote uh, a couple of pieces on it, and yeah. now people are looking at what exactly are you doing over there? What is this thing you're trying to sort of sneak, uh, sneak in without telling anyone? Yeah. A- and what the government has proposed, when you look at the PowerPoint thing, yeah. they are proposing changes to the Land Act, and they say they're doing it to uh, implement the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, which in BC uh, was uh, included in a piece of legislation this government introduced back in 2019, which uh, attaches to it the entire UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. That's where that comes from. It's this UN document. Yes, and. That document or that declaration, uh, there are a number of things about it that are, you know, uh, mothers and apple pie. Yeah. You know, things like, you know, Indigenous people have all the rights set out in the you know, UN Charter and so on. Much of it is like, yes, of course, right? Yeah. What other conclusion would you come to? But there's some elements of it in terms of things like the right uh, to... Uh, self-determination, rights to things like funding for autonomous government functions, yes. which might cause some people to say, well, hold on a minute. What exactly does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> right? And so that brings us to what this is. And the government's PowerPoint that has put out about proposed changes to the Land Act impacting on 94% of the province. And what the government says is that they are going to, or plan to, amend the Land Act uh, to make it consistent with this declaration on the rights of Indigenous people, in particular, Section 6 and 7, because you'd go there and look at, well, what are those? Let's have a look. And what's contemplated here is that the changes would allow the government to enter into agreements without any further legislation or debate uh, that would give Indigenous groups the right to veto land use changes. Interesting. And so the idea is that currently under the charter, there's a there are special protections for indigenous rights. So they include a right to consultation, right? So if there's going to be land use that there's some uh, First Nations claim to, and remember, it's like what is it, like 120 percent of the province is being claimed, so that's everywhere, right? Uh, there's a there's a duty to consult and there's a duty to try to accommodate. Yes. But the courts have been very clear that does not mean a veto right.
0: Correct. Right? It's yeah. sort
1: of a But this, what is proposed, would uh, turn the consultation into a right of sort of co-decision-making, which would mean that no longer would the uh, minister, whatever they might be called at any particular time, be making a decision in the public interest, taking everyone's interest into account, including the constitutional requirement for consultation, instead it would turn it into without further legislation a circumstance where there could be a first nations just veto no we don't want that power line no we don't want that uh, line for natural gas no we don't want that dam being built no we don't want whatever and then that would be it and so that is a very large change (laughs) that is not a that is not a kind of change that should be sort of slipped through with no press release by putting a consultation notice on a website that nobody's ever heard of before. Frankly, when I saw that, one of the things that caused me to smile was, of course, there is that constitutional right to consultation, which we currently have with First Nations, right? Yes. That exists. Everyone yeah. agrees that's there. Yeah. If that was the form of consultation the government tried on with First Nations, well, <laughs> it we would just worked up a thing on a website. You didn't <laughs> notice it. I guess you didn't have any problem with that. Uh, Start clear cutting, right? Yeah. You, you can imagine that would go absolutely nowhere.
2: Yeah,
1: uh, nor should it. Yeah. Right. Uh, and so this is a big change. This is not a small change. This is not something which, you know, you might want to make if you find the website, some written submission. We, and the plan would be to implement this and the legislation, they plan to implement or pass legislation uh, in the session between April and May this wow. year, introducing the bill. So what would it change. Be-
0: would it be cabinet? Yeah. So so I'm just trying to understand where the actual decision yeah. would be made. Do they give the ability to veto in advance, or is it a veto that you know the Premier's office or the Cabinet can allow, but if the Cabinet disagrees with it, can it veto the veto?
1: <laughs> I don't know about the vetoing the veto, but and we don't have the actual legislation. Oh, great. What we have is a PowerPoint they put up saying this is what they're planning to do. Okay,
0: no, I get it. Free to make
1: make a submission. Don't put any asterisks in your sexually explicit uh, submission to them. Okay. Uh, So I don't have the wording, just the proposal, but what it would allow the government to do, be it cabinet or the minister, that part hasn't been specified, would be to turn over veto rights uh, to a First Nation uh, without passing legislation. They could just do it. Hmm. And that's a very big change in terms of how the province would be operated. Yeah. And I think one that should be debated and thought about, and, you know, people should have a chance to have real input into it. Is that a good idea? Some people might say yes. Some people might say no. Some people might look at the sections of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People and say, oh, yes, I agree with all of that. Other people might say, well, hold on a minute. Uh, (laughs) Maybe this part isn't uh, exactly uh, in accordance with uh, values, but shouldn't be slipped through. It's important. And good on the law firm for noticing it, and good on Vaude Palmer for bringing it to people's attention, because otherwise, no one would have been off at that government website uh realizing what was going on, the number of people at engagegov.bc.ca, I'm sure, is nothing. Yeah. Um, and so uh, people should know about it. Maybe you want to make a submission or
2: yeah.
1: uh, do something about
0: it, because otherwise uh, it's a big change in terms of uh, virtually the whole province. Does it say whether or not the right to veto could be taken away by government once given? That's
1: really interesting because there would be constitutional issues about that. Yeah, if there was some agreement made with a First Nation saying we're going to do this and it was it became a treaty right, there would be constitutional issues about whether a future government could take that away. Exactly. So just think about that. Yeah, you could enter into some agreement which could turn over veto control for virtually the entire province with no further legislation in a way that couldn't be modified later. Just think about that. That's, That's scary. Pretty big change, probably something deserving a little more debate and consideration of public input. Uh, Maybe this will be an issue in the upcoming election, whether this is something people support in this way or something else. But whatever is going on, It shouldn't be slipped through uh, in an attempt to make it unnoticed. And the fact that the government clearly tried to do that is also troubling. That's really not on. So that's the Land Act, and that's what's going on.
0: All right. We'll take our first break. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, Legally Speaking, back after this. All right. Legally Speaking continues here on CFAX 1070. Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, up next, another COVID 19 story. What's the agenda? (laughs) It just will never end. What will it?
1: Uh, So, uh, it is a COVID 19 story, a case that has its origin in that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, the uh, parties involved uh, are both uh, sort of sympathetic sounding parties. One is a a small family owned duty free shop in Aldergrove. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, the uh, other party was a 78 year old uh, clerk who worked there for a number of years, also did janitorial work. Uh, And the. What happened, of course, is the border got shut down in March of 2020. Nobody could cross. Not good news if you have a small uh, family-owned duty-free shop at the border. No. uh, Who virtually 99% of their business, the finding was, were holiday and vacation travelers, of which there were none. Uh, And so because there was no one crossing, the family-owned duty-free shop uh, closed basically. It was closing for a couple of years. Um, Maybe not quite that long, but a long time. It closed. And so it laid off all the employees, including this 78-year-old sales clerk. Uh, And the reason for that was, according to the owner, quote, there was essentially no work for employees to do. Hmm. Well, by operation uh, of the uh, Employment Standards Act, uh, after that layoff uh, ran to a certain period of time, it was deemed to be a dismissal. And so The uh, 78-year-old sued for wrongful dismissal, Mm -hmm. Uh, and the uh, defense raised by the uh, family uh, duty-free shop was that the contract was frustrated by the border being closed. And so that's the, the that legal issue, that concept of frustration of a contract, is what wound up uh, now in the Court of Appeal. And I think that's interesting for people to know about. Uh, we've all dealt with a lot of frustration, I'm sure, in our lives at one point or other. But what is legal frustration? Well, it's been expressed in a variety of different ways by different courts using different language, huh. uh, talking about things like a situation which is, creates something radically different from what the parties undertook. Um, You know, and in that case, you might uh, relieve a party from their obligations to fulfill a contract. But some of that language, and the court gave various examples of how different courts have tried to uh, interpret what it means for a contract to be frustrated. Uh, And one of the things they found as a sort of a, a consistent theme is that, the kind of uh, impact uh, that, or the kind of thing contemplated by that sort of common law principle of a frustrated contract um, is that there must, it must, that event must impact the very nature of the contractual obligation themselves between the parties. And the court said, look, it's not enough that a party claiming frustration, uh, some change would result in hardship or an onerous circumstance or inconvenience or a material loss. Uh, and so the court then tried to, tried to, or did articulate, sort of, okay, well, what exactly does this mean when somebody's claiming a contract was frustrated? And this is the final way they articulated it. First of all, there has to be a qualifying superseding event that was not contemplated by the parties when they entered into the contract. So when the small-duty free shop hired the woman to be a clerk there, nobody contemplated COVID-19 and the border getting shot down, right? Fair enough. Tick. B. The superseding event was not the fault of either party. That's important, right? You can't create the problem and then say, I'm out of the contract. Good point, Yeah,
0: <laughs> right? good point.
1: Neither, neither of them did that. And then finally, this is an important one, the superseding event rendered performance of the contract something radically different from that which was undertaken. Now, Hmm. Here's how that fits into this fact pattern. You might still be scratching your head saying, well, does that apply or not?
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, and indeed, this went to the Court of Appeal. So here would be, be an example of how something might be and might not be. Let's say you and I had a contract. You agreed to buy my car. Uh, and uh, you are on your way to the bank to get the money. And uh, before you get back with the money, a tree falls on my car, crushing it into a pancake. And you show back up, and and you say, well, I'm not buying that. It's a pancake now. That's not what we agreed to And I saw it. It was a perfectly good car. That would be something radically different, like the car is now crushed by a tree, right? Probably that would frustrate the contract. But let's say, on the other hand, we entered into the agreement. We shake hands. You're on your way uh, back from the bank, and you get a phone call saying, you've just been transferred to Calgary for your job. And you say, oh, I don't want that car anymore. Uh, My circumstances have changed that well a big deal for you it would be a reasonable basis for somebody to say gee i don't want this car anymore i need a truck or something right yeah. that would not amount to frustration of the contract because it doesn't interfere with the car sale agreement right i can still give you what we bargained for there's a the car we agreed on the price you've got to finish that right okay uh and so On that analysis, the Court of Appeal found that this contract, the contract to employ the clerk, was not frustrated by the fact that the border was closed. It sure would cause hardship, right, for the small company to have to keep paying somebody when there's no work to do. No doubt about that, right? Just like if you agreed to buy my car and then got word that you'd got a job somewhere else where, you know, there was five feet of snow and the car wouldn't work or something, right? Boy, that's unfortunate for you but it doesn't really prevent me selling my car to you. The car is the same. The money's the same. Yeah, I get it. It's kind of a hardship. If you don't get a car you don't want, but that doesn't get you out of a contract. Uh, and so uh, that was the outcome here. The Court of Appeal found that, yeah, there is a lot less business, Uh, and yes, that definitely creates a financial hardship for the company. And in fact, you might even have a circumstance where the company just goes bankrupt and can't pay, right? That's possible, but it doesn't get you out of the obligation to hire the person because you're still able to have the person stand there at the cash register and clean the store, even though there's only 1% of the people coming through the store, you know, essential truck drivers or something getting liquor, although maybe that's not a great thing, uh, you know. It doesn't prevent that contract from continuing, even though this was uncontemplated and even though neither people caught, person caused it, that change, the border closing, wasn't the sort of event that interfered radically with the contract. It, it interfered with the desirability of the contract very substantially for one of the parties, but that doesn't amount to frustration. Hmm. And so that's really the point the Court of Appeal has made, and that's why the case is important.
0: Interesting. We've got one more talk of censuring politicians comes up from time to time, and I'm noticing a regional district board member is mentioned in this next one. Indeed. We've had lots of talk of censuring, haven't we? We have. Uh, well, <laughs> so this is a case
1: uh, uh, with the, involving the Strathcona Regional District, uh, and the fact pattern was one of the elected board members of that district um, had some property on which there was uh, a small cabin uh, that the board member's father lived in. Uh, The cabin, very sadly, burned down, Uh, and uh, some uh, friends of the uh, people involved set up a GoFundMe page to try to raise money to rebuild the modest cabin. The GoFundMe raised $3,700 to try to rebuild this cabin. Uh, And then what happened uh, is that there was a complaint made uh, by some of the constituents complaining that... Hey this elected person is getting some thirty seven hundred dollar benefit as a result of being a board member well uh that then resulted in a uh closed session uh mm-hmm. of the uh which also seems like a common theme around here yep uh sort of an in camera session of this um uh, regional district uh, discussing that issue about uh, whether there's some benefit and whether there should be a censure or whether she was, in fact, disqualified from continuing to be a board member uh, based on the uh, uh, just local government act. Hmm. Now, the board member, the woman whose father has her cabin burned, his cabin burned down, yes. was concerned about all of this and went and consulted a lawyer to get some legal advice on where she stood and what should happen. Um, and The lawyer wrote a letter to the uh, board about uh, that, making a submission uh, on her behalf about uh, whether she should be censured and so on. So fair enough. The board then disciplined her on the basis that she told the lawyer about what happened in the closed meeting. Hmm. So the interesting issue is the issue was for the court of appeal is telling a lawyer that you've hired – um, a breach uh, of uh confidentiality in one of these secret local government meetings huh
0: I wouldn't think it uh, would because be. of,
1: because of the basis of that, they disciplined her, yeah, okay, and then the other issue was was she subject to, you know should she get uh, compensation for the cost of hiring a lawyer to defend the the unsuccessful effort to have her disqualified on the basis of the money raised for her father's cabin. Um, ultimately, the conclusion on that was, no, she didn't get some personal benefit. This is a modest amount she hadn't organized for her father, and it wasn't a result of her position, right? She didn't get some benefit because of her position. The uh, Court of Appeal, well, first of all, that uh, on the uh, trial decision, uh, the judge found that uh, the censure decision and the decision not to indemnify her for illegal expenses were reasonable and didn't overturn them. Uh, But that didn't survive uh, scrutiny in the Court of Appeal. And the Court of Appeal found uh, that, of course, it's a pretty fundamental principle that somebody be able to get legal advice in terms of what they should they be doing and what are their obligations and so on. And the Court of Appeal found that uh, given the importance of that um, and the, of course, listener-client privilege that would attach to all of that and the duties of confidentiality that lawyers have to their uh, clients, that it was not, uh, according to the Court of Appeal, a uh, breach uh, of the uh, requirement to maintain confidentiality uh, for one of these closed-in-camera hearings to go and get legal advice about it and by necessity tell the lawyer, here's what's going on in this meeting. They want to censure me and (laughs) have me kicked out. Can they do that? What should I do? And so the Court of Appeal found that uh, that was not a breach, uh, that it was unreasonable as a result to censure her for doing that and overturn that, and furthermore uh, found that it was unreasonable to uh, fall unreasonable to refuse to um, pay for her legal expenses generated by this unsuccessful application to have her uh, disqualified, uh, and so uh, a complete victory at the end of the day for the uh, elected councillor in the Strathcona Regional District. Uh, the uh, uh, censure was overturned, and uh, there will be a requirement that your legal expenses be paid, and so you're not breaching your confidentiality agreement uh, when you uh, get uh, legal advice.
0: Very well. Michael Mulgan with Mulgan Defence Lawyers, legally speaking during the second half of our second hour every Thursday. Pleasure as always. Thank you so much. Have a great day. All right. Bye now.